ladies and gentlemen, there has been a murder, and you are a suspect. Oh, this is so fabulous. Ain't nothing like getting together with family and having a good meal. I wonder what's for dinner. This is delicious. It was at this moment he knew. This is rotten. Ah! What'd you say? I said eat. <laughs> Drink. Yeah. Where the fuck your toe? That whole missing. <laughs> oh gosh, that's not good because we're talking about Megan the Stallion and it's open toe season if you're Tory Lanes. <laughs> we're terrible. Yeah, that's but awful. hey, guess what? It doesn't matter. Like, hey everyone, welcome back. It's E D M E Tree. That stands for Eat Drink. Explosions here, explosions here. Lots of fire. Shout out yes. House of Dragon. We can't wait to see season two. Why do we keep two. doing House of Dragons? We keep going back to House of Dragons. It's okay. I don't know. It's our shit. No, man. I know. I love it too. Yeah. And yeah, this is the second part of a third part series of a fourth part series of a series that we have that's called Mindhunter Part 3. Larry King's Bill <laughs> Part 2. <laughs> no, but we're getting to the conclusion. It's the conclusion of our little episodic series within our series. South Carolina, Carolina Strange and Sinister. So, uh, what are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing? So today for our eat, we had brah. We had some brah. We had brah. And I, I told my only Lord of the Rings joke. Where did Frodo go when he left the Shire? Where was that? He went to the village of Bree. Nice. And yes. we had some brie cheese. It's my favorite cheese. It is a good cheese. It's No, it is my favorite cheese. Oh. I usually... Put a little drizzle of honey on my brie, but I heat it up in the oven oh, and just okay. have like a little bit you of got toast. got a little charcuterie going on there. It's good. But today we switched it up and we put pesto and sun-dried tomatoes on top. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It was really good. It was good. I yep. love sun-dried tomatoes. I love pesto. love cheese. So, yeah. When you mix all three together, it brings me to my knees. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm a poet. And then we also had for our drink. Well, so I was getting to that because, like, what pairs well with cheese and usually what comes to mind is wine. But mm-hmm. what cocktails yeah. go with a fine cheese? Yeah. Even though you have been really into wines lately. I know. Especially your white wines. But it's okay. Fucking it's all right. Now. I've come to accept that. It's part of my life now. I'm proud of it. What really goes with uh, a fine cheese is is a fine gin and tonic from London. Yeah. And I decided to put some little citrus stuff in there. So we're having a nice little citrus gin and tonic. You know what I'm saying? It's it's the drink of my people. It was a little Basically, you just get any citrus you can. We just limes, lemons, oranges, and uh, something I've never heard of. uh, Sumo citrus. Can I try that real quick? Uh, Yeah, man. But it's it's super sweet. It's, It's almost like a tangerine. But basically, you just juice that all up and you put it in your gin and tonic. But we had a little special gin and tonic. So you just put a bunch of citrus stuff and you put it in that gin and tonic and you possibly, you know, garnish with a little fresh rosemary. That's tight. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. It was good. You get a nice whiff of the bush. I don't the, know if yeah, that's the yeah, most, I'm talking about the rosemary bush. I don't know if that's the most appetizing way of saying it, but <laughs> what I can tell you is that that rosemary 
and that drink uh-huh. and that brie all made for some beautiful pictures and you can find all those pictures on oh am this? i doing a, it's, oh, is this a oh, is this oh, is oh, it possible power plug <laughs> Yes, this Dang. is your power plug, and guess what? Uh-huh. So I'm gonna do this in a voice where it's just super sexy. And wow. this is what you're gonna do. You're uh-huh. gonna follow us on all our delicious wow. social medias. Yeah. That would include <laughs> Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. Oh my God. All of the delicious <laughs> social medias. And then what you're gonna do, uh-huh. if you wanna like direct message us, uh-huh. you're gonna go to like a drink murder podcast at Gmail. And after that, you can always find all our like really, really cool stuff on a drink murder.com mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> that was that a was great was so we did it so we did our we did eat it. we, we did, did our drink, drink. and, and now, now it's time for the Sorry, gosh, I know you're tired of hearing me say it like that, but guess what? I love it. It's kind of a thing now. Yeah, it is a thing. I like it. I like yeah. things. <laughs> so tonight on our episode of Eat Drink Murder, we're trying to get to this conclusion of the whole John Douglas, Larry Jean Bell scenario that happened yeah. here in South Carolina. It's yeah. fucking crazy, man. So on our last episode, we left off at our unsub, which is known as an unidentified subject, just in case you didn't know. I got really deep into the John Douglas. Yeah, I'm, I'm proud of you for using that you, you said, terminology. He uses unsub? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah, that's something that he good. defines early in I the love book. love it. And he uses it quite often in Mindhunter. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, now we're Mindhunters. We are. We are. Yep. Our unsub was hopping out of his gray car with red racing stripes at the Helmick residence located at the Shiloh Mobile Home Park. Mm-hmm. On June 14th, nine-year-old Deborah Mae Helmick was playing in the yard with her little brother and sister, Becky and Woody. A neighbor of the Helmicks, Ricky Morgan, looks out of his kitchen window and sees a white male grab Deborah Mae around the waist and take her to his car. Ricky runs to the Helmick house where Mr. Helmick had just exited the mobile home after hearing a ruckus outside. Ricky, yelling at Mr. Helmick, says, Did you see that man take your daughter? Frantically, Mr. Helmick searches around the house and he doesn't find Deborah anywhere, but he does find Woody, the younger brother of Deborah, visibly shaken and hiding under a bush near the trailer. Mr. Helmick runs over to his friend, Johnny. I think Johnny was the car provider guy. He gave Miss Helmick a ride home earlier. And anyway, Johnny was back apparently, and they get into Johnny's car and they both speed off in the direction where Deborah May was taken. Mr. Helmick desperately starts stopping cars he sees along the road, and he asks them for any information about the abductor's car until he sees a Richland County Sheriff's car and flags it down, and he screams, someone has taken my daughter. The deputy radioed in for assistance and responding officers started a ground and air search but the abductor and Deborah May had vanished. So what strikes me with all of this right now is that Deborah May is so young, mm-hmm. a lot younger than his other victim. At this point. Right. And we'll get into the reasons why that may be. But during all this time, you may be asking yourself, where's our mastermind hunter? Where's John Douglas at? At the time, Douglas, 
He's aware of the ongoing situation that's happening in South Carolina, particularly Lexington County. Mm -hmm. He even puts together a 22 point profile of the unsub. According to Rita Schuler, who was one of our authors for our source, this is the 22 point profile. He pointed the abductor as a white male, late 20s to early 30s, single blue collar day laborer with above average intelligence, probably worked in electrical contracting because the phone calls appeared to be electronically distorted. Prior criminal record, lived locally and blended into society. The tone of content in his voice calls indicated him to be asocial, obsessive, compulsive. If the stress of everyday life became too great, he would break down and would then need to compensate for his own inadequacies. He had no remorse through violent actions. He was the type of guy that feels like one grain of sand on a beach where there are billions and billions of grains of sand. He feels like nothing. He feels like a nobody. He is probably overweight and unattractive with low self-esteem. The only way he can become somebody is to go after a victim with whom he would have no chance to ever come in contact. Someone like Sherry. This makes him think that he can become powerful and in charge. Absolutely. And you're going to see how, like we talked about in Mindhunter Part 1, how fucking accurate this shit is. It's yeah. incredible. I really love the way that he articulates what it means to be a sociopath with the analogy for the grain of sand. It sounds like American Psycho. Have you ever read American Psycho? I haven't. But anyway, I mean, it's incredible how detailed he can be. Like you said, he's a great storyteller and that's what makes a great investigator. Mm -hmm. So after this Deborah Helmick abduction, Douglas thought it would be best to actually have some feet on the ground. And he travels to Lexington, South Carolina to assist in this manhunt. Back at the scene, one of the only witnesses of the abduction, which is Ricky, the native had stated that he saw a white male, 30 to 35, that had a beer belly, a closely cropped beard, and a mustache with a receding hairline, which I guess you could say is unattractive. Yeah, it sounds ugly. <laughs> it does sound ugly. So unattractive, you know, you can put a check mark by that one. Um, they also talked to Woody, which was the little brother. Oh my gosh, it's so awful. The little brother that was hiding under the bush near the house. The terrified little boy only said, the bad man said he was coming back to get me. When Douglas arrived on scene, uh, he actually went to both the Smith and Helmick residencies. Douglas believed that at the time that these kidnappings were connected. Initially, they didn't know for sure. They did have an idea that if this was the same case that Deborah May would tragically meet the same fate as Sherry and that law mm -hmm. enforcement's inability to catch this criminal would strengthen his resolve and mm -hmm. the kidnappings would continue. So um, it's like more important than ever to catch this guy. It's absolutely. Like, I could just imagine that he's top of mind. Oh yeah, I mean, there's for, a whole task force and mm -hmm. everything. They're going whole hog. Unlike the Smith case, there was no phone calls made to the Helmick residents. One of the practical reasons for this is that the Helmicks did not have a landline. But as we see later, our unsub Mm -hmm. finds a different way to meet that satisfaction. This is a perfect example from our first episode of The Mindhunter, mm -hmm. where we talked about the difference between signature and MO. Right. Because his MO would have been calling the victims on their landline. Right. 
but the signature goes further than just an mo and it has what he has to do to fulfill himself yep so he's still going to do things i think that john can draw from in, in his criminal profiling as, exactly as we tell the story You're exactly guys. right yeah so because they did not have a landline there were no calls made to the house so desperate for leads douglas searched the smith residence he went back to the smiths he started back at the source to find a way that he could possibly bring the killer out of the shadows in sherry's room he discovers a large collection of stuffed koala bears which happened to be the mascot of columbia college where sherry's sister dawn attended and that's where sherry eventually wanted to go Mm -hmm. douglas's idea was to hold a publicized memorial service for sherry with dawn at the center point of the event douglas believes after reading through all the phone transcripts and seeing all the likeness that Don had with Sherry, that the killer had some type of special connection to Don. If you remember in the last episode, he even accidentally, whenever he's talking he about Sherry, said, he accidentally he says Don. Yeah. Right. One of the unimaginable things that I have found in this case mm-hmm. is that the Smith family is willing to play ball just to help catch this guy you got to give them kudos i don't know if it's just strategic like i feel like they're truly empathetic people oh yeah absolutely the smith family absolutely and you'll see at the end of this how empathetic they can be so the idea was to have don present one of sherry's stuffed koala bears at sherry's gravesite during some type of memorial service and have all the media show it and what that would do is hopefully bring out the killer who could not help himself to either come by and see or possibly hopefully even take the koala that don had placed there because he wouldn't be able to control himself now before this plan was even put into action a phone call comes into the smith residence i know y'all are tired of these phone calls but but it's important to the story a phone call comes into the smith residence on june 22nd at 12 17 a.m at midnight eight days after the helmic abduction which is a little bit of time so you can see how desperate they are for leads here we go i have a collect call for sherry faye smith yes i'll take the call thank you don you know this isn't a hoax correct uh did you find sherry faye's ring uh no i didn't okay I don't know where it is, okay? You know, God wants you to join Sherry Faye. It's just a matter of time. This month, next month, this year, next year, you can't be protected all the time. And you know, have you heard of Deborah Mae Hamrick? Uh, no. The 10-year-old H-E-L-M-I-C-K? Richland County? Yeah, Uh uh-huh. Okay, now listen carefully. Go one north, well, Bill's Grill. Go three and a half miles through Gilbert. Turn right, last dirt road before you come to a stop sign at Two Notch Road. Go through a chain and no trespassing sign. Go 50 yards and to the left. Go 10 yards, Deborah May is waiting. God forgive us all. Hey, listen. What? Uh... Just out of curiosity, how old are you? Donnie, your time is near. God forgive us and protect us all. 
Good night for now, Donnie Smith. Wait a second here. What happened to the pictures you said you were going to send me? Apparently the FBI must have them. No, sir. Because when they have something, we get it too. You know, are you going to send them? I think you're jerking me around. Because you said they were coming, and they're not here. Don E. Smith, I must go. Listen. You said you were gonna, and you did not give me the photos. Good night, Don. I'll talk to you later. And the caller hangs up. The phone call was traced to a payphone at Palmetto Plaza Shopping Center in Sumter. Man, that has to be pretty terrifying for for Dawn. Absolutely. Dude. Yeah, just reading her transcript and just listening to the way that you describe this family, she seems just unbelievably brave and just has so much resolve to even absolutely. be able to talk to this guy. She she is a trooper. John Douglas even goes into like, you can teach people how to talk to people like this, but some people just have it naturally. And apparently Don was one of those people who just kind of naturally tried to get as much information as she could from these phone calls, even though it was tearing her apart the entire time. Yeah. The phone call was traced to a payphone at Palmetto Plaza Shopping Center in Sumter, approximately 50 miles from the Smith residence. As with all previous outgoing call locations, there was no evidence found when police arrived. Just like the precise directions given to find Sherry's body, police rushed to the scene with the same conclusion. It was found that Deborah May was most likely killed from asphyxiation, but the autopsy results were inconclusive due to the heavy decomposition, which means seeing as how the time between abduction and discovery was a little over a week, she had been killed and dumped shortly after the kidnapping. Yeah, that just is terrifying as well because mm -hmm. Larry Jean Bell is able to just steal these kids right from underneath their parents' nose. Oh yeah, this is broad daylight mm -hmm. when this happens. Yeah. One of the peculiar items found at the crime scene was what the victim was wearing. There were two pairs of panties found on the body. One pair was just a regular child's pair of panties and the other one was an adult pair of panties. Was it over the normal pair Yes, of yeah, it was like two pairs pairs, one stacked on top of the other. Douglas hypothesized that the killer was playing out some sort of sick fantasy, trying to recreate the same scenario he had with Sherry with Deborah May. I see. It kind of begs the question, why go after a little girl? This is kind of why what you're going after. Mm -hmm. It seems like Sherry being 17, uh -huh. Deborah May being nine years old at the time, they kind of wouldn't have any similar characteristics except to the killer, their similar characteristic is that he could easily control this person. Mm. It's less of a victim's physical appearance and more of their defensivelessness. But the satisfaction he reached with Sherry couldn't be met with a nine-year-old's body. So he had to do something to somehow make it similar in his sick fantasy. Right. Hence this adult bikini style panties that were found along with Deborah May. It's fucking awful. Douglas, you know, he was already in Lexington County at this time. Mm -hmm. He was starting to second guess himself on his plan to hold a memorial service for Sherry, fearing that Don would be put in danger. But like, as we know, Don is a fucking trooper yes, and she, she would do anything to catch this sick fuck. Sure enough, the day after what would have been Sherry's 18th birthday, mm -hmm. a memorial service was held 
and Dawn played her part perfectly. She put the stuffed koala on Cherry's headstone with all the world to see. You know, Douglas knew that this guy was watching the media, he was looking at the newspapers, he was watching TV, he wanted to make sure that that they showed Don putting that koala on the headstone. I mean, he called his favorite news reporter. Right. So way to go, John yeah. Douglas, for using everything you could against this man. Now, it was time to see if Douglas's trap would be set. It didn't. <laughs> it didn't. But fortunately, it did not have to because a forensic bomb had just gone off at SLED. Mm-hmm. On Tuesday, June 26th, the ESDA machine that we talked about in the last episode, it used those little graphite particles to show those little indentations on the page where there had been any writing on the previous page. There was a break on Sherry's last will and testament, faint traces of what appeared to be a phone number were found. Nice. Unfortunately, uh-huh. there was one number missing from the 10 digit line that could not be deciphered. So what they did was the investigative team just plugged in each number zero through nine on a phone. Right. Um, until one of the combinations turned out to be a Huntsville, Alabama number. Okay. The FBI cross-referenced this number's outgoing calls to anywhere in the South Carolina area. And sure enough, they get a hit to a residence owned by a Ellis and Sharon Shepard who lived in Saluda County, 15 miles away from the Smith's house. Okay. Authorities made a call to the Alabama number and it turned out to be Ellis and Sharon's son, Joey, who confirmed that his parents lived in Saluda County. The following day, the same day as Deborah May's funeral, police arrive at the Shepard's house they immediately realize something is not right and that this couple, Sharon and Ellis Shepard, have nothing to do with these crimes. At their house, the police spot a yellow notepad near the house phone, mm-hmm. matching the paper that Sherry's last will and testament was written on. That is kind of... It's huge. Suspicious, right? Right. The Shepherds were brought into the police station for questioning. As it turns out, During all of these murders, they were out of town. The police desperately trying to make some type of connection. This is like the only lead they got. They gave the shepherds this criminal profile that Douglas had put together. And who would be using your house while y'all were gone? Well, it turns out they had a house sitter while they were out on vacation. They were an old couple. They liked a vacation. Mm and they felt better with someone house-sitting for them. Mm -hmm. And who else would that be but Larry Jean Bell, who totally matches this description of John Douglas's 22-point profile. Mm -hmm. The Shepherds had written down their son's phone number on that same notepad for Bell to use in case of emergencies, and it's a perfect match. Like, you lay one on top of the other, and it's a perfect match. Bell worked with Mr. Shepard as an electrician's assistant. Now, Douglas was certain that the killer would have drastically changed his appearance recently and that he wouldn't be able to stop talking about these murders. Mm-hmm. Sure enough, when Bell picks up the Shepherds from the airport after they went on vacation, guess what he talks about the entire time while he's picking them up? 
the murders. Yep. <laughs> yep. Miss Shepard right. distinctly remembers that Belle also had a newly shaved beard. And this is fucking crazy. He even asked the Shepherds, do you think the family will want to find the body so they can make funeral arrangements? Shit. Yeah, he's a dick. <laughs> what is his problem? I mean... It's all that's happening inside of his brain right now. That's all he can talk about, all he can think about, and maybe he feels some type of, like, it's not remorse. It's not remorse, it's narcissism. But these narcissists, it's all about justification. Yeah. It's all about, in some way, in their mind, framing what they did as right. Absolutely. And okay. Here's the kicker. Something else that Miss Shepard recalled was that Bell initially and respectfully addressed her as Miss Shepard until they got to know each other a little bit. Then he started calling her Sharon. Mm -hmm. Whenever he picks them back from the airport, he calls her Sherry. Wow. Fucking sick, That is dude. terrible. The Shepherds also confirmed that the writing found on the SDA machine mm -hmm. was their handwriting. Okay. So the police played the phone calls for Ellis Shepard, and he says, that son of a bitch, that's Larry Jean Bell. And at this point, it's, it's so good because it's so obvious to these people. Mm -hmm. And they're listening to this guy on the phone, mm -hmm. and they know exactly who it is. And here's just a little background on Bell because we didn't really get to this earlier. Bell was born October 30th, 1949, in Ralph, Alabama, southwest of Tuscaloosa. The family moved around a lot, with Bell attending high school in Columbia and then Tupelo, Mississippi. He married shortly after high school when he was 20 years old to a 16 year old 10th grade student who of course had blonde hair and blue eyes. Just like Sherry, just like Deborah May. Mm -hmm. Deborah May, gosh, I'm country. Anyway, Bell joined the Marine Corps mm -hmm. in 1970 with the intention to going to fight in Vietnam, but he didn't even last a year. He injured his knee when he accidentally shot himself while cleaning his firearm. <laughs> what a piece of shit. Anyway, in 1971, he worked as a prison guard for the South Carolina Department of Corrections, but that only lasted a year. But that just brings to the point in Mindhunter, a lot of time the perps are people that work very closely with law enforcement. Oh yeah. You know, they drive old police cars or the same model cars as police cars. Mm -hmm. It gives In them probably case, a sense of power too. Right, or they uh, have jobs where they are closely associated with the police force, but oftentimes these perps are not able to actually be a viable candidate for the police. So they have Absolutely to Absolutely not. Jobs. And one of the main things is because they have priors. Uh -huh. One of, um, before the Smith and Helmick murders, in February 1975, Bell was arrested on assault and battery charges in Rock Hill after he approached a young girl in a shopping center parking lot and relentlessly urged her to go with him to Charlotte and party. Uh -huh. When she refused, he pulls out a knife and points it at her stomach and tries to drag her into his green Volkswagen. She screams to the top of her lungs and fights him off. So he runs, goes back in his car and drives away. A woman nearby heard the screams, calls the police 
and they were able to catch him not far from the shopping center. He pled guilty in May of that year and was sentenced to five years in prison and a $1,000 fine. I wish there was more that we could do in that case. You know, I wish, oh, absolutely. I wish you could put these people away forever because you see that's a clear sign of someone that's going to continue doing what they're doing and it's only going to get worse. The prison sentence was actually suspended on condition of payment of the fine and converted to probation. So he doesn't mm -hmm. hardly do any jail time whatsoever. And after he pays the fine, he gets on probation. That makes me sick. Oh, God. At this time, he was employed as a reservations clerk for Eastern Airlines. He was still married and living with his wife and their two-year-old son, but they would divorce the following year. Right. Two times, Bell checks himself into psychiatric facilities. Mm -hmm. Once at the South Carolina State Hospital and once at the Columbia Veterans Administration Hospital for personality disorders of a psychosexual nature so that kind of is i guess a little frustrating for me is that he i guess maybe in some degree recognized that he had a problem and attempted to seek help for it oh yeah well so in so did we fail this man well <sighs> he definitely should have been behind bars yeah or at least behind some wall <laughs> it's nothing you can do when someone is coming to you they say hey i have this problem he definitely and i'm sure the people yeah. that he came to was like we need to lock him up but there's no protocol for that there's well, no you'll see there's it, nothing it, we can do to just shortly put him away yeah shortly later in october 1975 just eight months after his previous offense he helps a woman up from her feet after she slips and falls he says to her as he's helping her up i am armed he shows her a handgun and attempts to force her into his car. They struggle for a moment and she manages to get away. Again, the same thing. He runs away, gets back in his car, drives away. In this second case, he didn't get off the hook. Okay. Just as with the previous attempted abduction, he was identified shortly after the incident and is picked up by the police. In June 1976, he pleads guilty to assault and battery in the case. His previous probation is revoked and he was sentenced for five more years in prison and ordered to receive psychiatric evaluation and counseling while incarcerated. He ended up only serving two years before being paroled. Oh my God. Despite a psychiatric report that stated the chance of him repeating his acts is very high. What's going on? Why? Why do we see this all the time? In October 1979, in Charlotte, North Carolina, Bell was convicted of making obscene telephone calls to a 10-year-old girl in Mecklenburg County from February through July of that year. Although the obscene calls led to another arrest and guilty plea, Bell got no more jail time. Instead, he was given a two-year suspended sentence with another five years probation added on. After going through Bell's background and collecting all of the evidence, police obtained a warrant for Bell's arrest and set up a roadblock near where Bell lived with his parents on Shoal Island in Lake Murray. Mm -hmm. Around 7.30 a.m. on June 27th, Bell's gray Buick makes its way down the road 
while police are waiting. The car is stopped and deputies approach the vehicle and ask the driver his name. The driver responds, my name is Larry Jean Bell. This is about them girls, isn't it? Wow. Shit. Is that your, you're just gonna just try to jump out there and say what it is? And it's funny, I guess, that he calls himself Larry Jean Bell. This goes back to our, I don't know. Our trifecta? Our first episode. Right. Our first episode. You don't trust anybody with three fucking names. Damn, CD, you (laughs) called it. You called it. I said you would be a great investigator, but now I'm starting to lean a little bit towards your theory that you might just be a- This is my philosophy, man. You might just be a serial killer. Anyway. (laughs) Continue. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Bell was booked at the Lexington County Sheriff's Department. He was questioned by authorities, including- John Douglas. One of the interesting things that Douglas told officers to do is to set up a trailer that the police had recovered from a recent drug bust and set it as a task force headquarters, riddled with pictures of the crime scene, pictures of the family, blank folders with Larry Jean Bell's name written all over him and have several busy looking police officers to give off this idea of a massive case. This was to attempt to get a confession, but unfortunately, to sum it up, Bell would only say stuff like the Larry Jean Bell I know or the Larry Jean Bell sitting in front of you would never do anything like this. Basically, he's setting up his insanity defense by referring to himself in the third person Mm -hmm. in a last ditch effort and possibly to evoke some type of spontaneous reaction, Sheriff Metz allows one of Bell's requests Mm -hmm. to meet with the Smith family. Deputies bring in Hilda and Don Smith who were just prepped by John Douglas on how to act and react to Bell. After getting settled in the interrogation room, the officers brought in Larry Jean Bell and sat him a few feet away in a chair across from Sherry's mother and sister. Here's what happened. Thank you all for coming. Sheriff Matt said that the evidence was here, but this person sitting here, this Larry Jean Bell, I could not have done this ungodly thing. Right now, I don't know how to explain it. I know it's touched a lot of people and destroyed a lot of lives. When I click on that reason, I'll let your family know. I recognize your voice. I know that it's you. I talked on the phone with you. Do you recognize my voice? I recognize your face from TV and pictures in the paper. It's just the bad side of me that's called all this horrible destruction in people's lives. Your sister and that little girl, it's just something in me. You honestly can't think back and remember my voice? Because you know we talked. Do you remember what you called me on the phone? I guess just Dawn. How about the middle initial? No, I requested that your family be here. I'm trying to put you on some kind of rest with why. They have the evidence against me. I feel terrible about this. If this was directly the result of something bad in me, if God chooses that I ended up going to court and being put to death, that's just something I have to do. Well, why would you have wanted to hurt me? I don't want to hurt you. I don't even know you. The person sitting here, Don, 
is not a violent person. I wish I could answer your question now. If I could come up with the answers, and I know I can do that, I'll tell you everything I remember about it. If I was sure this person here was capable of controlling what happened to your sister, I would confess it in a minute. I feel guilty about something. When I picked up the paper a couple days ago, I felt like I was directly or indirectly responsible for something like that. And Don, that's when I felt like somehow I was drawn close to your family as being part of your family. If I was responsible for taking away part of your family, it just horrifies me that I can do something like that, Don. I hope you believe me. I have soul searched all day and I'm glad you came. You said in one conversation that you and my sister had become one. Do you think that might have anything to do with that feeling of being part of my family? I can't answer that now, Don. The main reason I want your family here is maybe we can hit on something that would help me explain. I didn't want to talk to you on the phone because I had sit there for hours today and listened to them. Darn horrible phone calls. It wasn't helping me. It was hurting me. But you had listened to them today and you hear that it is you and your voice. I would say that 90% of that sounded muffled, but Don, the other part of it would have to be, unless it's mighty darn good imitation. Talking to me now, can you feel that was me talking on those tapes? Your voice sounds different now than on the tape, but Don, whatever caused this, I truly hope this won't destroy y'all's lives. He must have picked this up right from Sherry's last will and testament. This is gonna destroy my family too, but hopefully they'll be strong enough to go on with their lives. There's bad in me, but I can't say the devil put it there. Cause I say my prayers every night, and every morning. In other words, whatever happened wasn't his fault because he- Well, you have recognized that it could be your voice. Oh yeah, like I said, 90% of it was muffled, but the rest was, he turns to Hilda, like I told your daughter, Mrs. Smith. If I'm directly responsible for this crime, I do apologize if I brought tragedy into your lives and tragedy to myself. Your daughter can explain everything else that I've said. I don't know what to say to you. I just can't believe I've done those horrible things. Did you know our daughter? No, I don't know your family. Maybe on down the road, I'll have that breaking point that I can come up with the answers for you. Nothing you can say or do can bring Sherry back. No, and if I could honestly say today that I did this, I would tell you right now. I know definitely that it is you on those tapes. No question in my mind. I talked to you and you talked to me and there definitely couldn't be a mistake there. We just want to know the truth, nothing else. When I can come up with the truth, I'll tell you all that. Even though I sit this close and look at you and know you're the man that called my house, I don't hate you. There is not enough room in my heart for more pain. Then Don says, You said you didn't know me. Maybe I look so much like Sherry. Maybe you can possibly remember something from that. If I put that picture of her up beside you, y'all don't look alike, in my personal opinion. Sheriff Metz indicates to Don and Hilda, it's time to leave. And they start to get up. If I remember down the line, can we conference again? And I'll tell you what I know. Thank you very much. God bless us all.
It's just amazing to me how much this Smith family has endured and how they react. Like Miss Smith had said that she forgives him. She was trying her best along with Don to, to get as much person. information as possible during this interview. Now, further evidence was found from the Shepherd's house and Bell's car, including hairs that matched both Sherry Smith and Deborah May. Larry Jean Bell was put on trial for both cases and of course, he used insanity as his defense during the cases. Obviously, you don't get multiple personality disorder whenever you're fucking in your 30s. Right. Anyway, <laughs> Douglas thought that he would actually testify himself, and he does for about six fucking hours, where he rambles continuously blurts out bizarre comments like his fucking motto for this whole trial is silence is golden he keeps saying silence is golden whenever somebody starts to ask him something silence is golden oh my god the most sickening thing mm -hmm. was on like three different occasions throughout the proceedings in both cases that's the sherry smith case and the deborah may case he proposes to marry Dawn in front of everyone. Oh my God. While she's present. Fucking sick. He like asks her yeah. for her hand in marriage? Yep. For Sherry's case, the jury rendered a guilty verdict after about two hours of deliberations on February 27th, 1986. And Larry Jean Bell was sentenced to death. 13 months later, the trial began for Deborah May Helmick, and that too rendered a guilty verdict only after an hour of deliberations, and Bell received an additional death sentence. In South Carolina, we do not mind exercising that death penalty. Well, it's interesting you say that because in the county that Larry Jean Bell was in currently, it had been outlawed previously, and this is one of the first capital punishments that is executed in quite some time. Because this case was such high profile, mm -hmm. they decided to take both Sherry Smith and Deborah May's cases outside of the county. Okay. After about 10 years on death row, Larry Jean Bell had exhausted all state and federal appeals and was executed by old Sparky on Friday, October 4th, 1996. Like electric? Dude. Yeah, so at the time, this is actually kind of bizarre. Up until I think 2004, he was the last person executed by electrocution, but he opted for it. At the time when he was sentenced to death in 1996, he had a choice of lethal he injection. He had a choice of lethal injection or electrocution, and he decided to choose electrocution because he believed old Sparky was made from the same wood that Jesus was crucified on, <laughs> something like that. Anyway, okay. that was the end of Larry Jean Bell's plague on South Carolina. Hallelujah. Absolutely. Now, without a doubt, this is one of the saddest stories I've ever had to do. Fortunately, the Smiths try to see the light of the whole situation. Don actually goes on to become a Miss South Carolina. Oh, that's cool. And like and the beauty pageants? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Her and Sherry both had amazing singing voices. And their parents founded the South Carolina Victims Hope of South Carolina, which is basically where they would go in and help other victims of violent crimes. One of the things that this story has that a lot of stories don't is that 
the Smith family actually decided to do some good with the tragedy that, that they happens. faced. Yeah. I guess if there's a small silver lining in all of this is that the Smith family, their integrity really carried through throughout all of this. Well, Absolutely. To poor Sherry. In, in Hilda Smith's book, she says it's truly by the grace of God that she was able to go through all this. You know, even though it's a tragedy, it has helped people. Mm-hmm. And that's what's important. And that's where we're going to end you for tonight. I think it was a great episode. It was was a nice conclusion to everything that we have built up to. And I just want to thank y'all so much from the bottom of my heart. Well, mostly I want to thank the the Smith family because they allowed us to kind of walk away from this with at least some level of resolvement. They Mm -hmm. were, yeah. And we're getting closer to the end of our South Carolina Strange Strange and Sinister. Sinister. Yeah. We're going to be moving on to bigger, better more other things so yeah but edm but to close us out we have coming up one of the most prolific one of the most infamous serial killers in south carolina history all oh, together should we so, tease him a little bit or like oh no know. that's all i'm leaving with we're oh, not gonna, gonna tell him who that. we're not gonna leave him with yeah. the name you're gonna have to come back for yeah. the next one yeah all i'm gonna say will, that will is what he lacks in stature he makes up for in brutality and until then we're gonna wish you a very good evening day night wherever you are yep and thanks for tuning in it was a lot of fun <laughs> absolutely good night yeah, everyone good night. peace ah. oh that's a hot one that's a spicy meatball